So hi, everyone. Um, welcome to this week's session of Red Start. Uh, as you know from last time, I'm Natalie. Um, I'm a member of Red Star San Francisco. Um, Red Star is a Marxist caucus of DSA San Francisco that's working to build a revolutionary politics in the Democratic Socialists of America. Um, so if you ended up on this call, uh, but you didn't have a chance to register, go ahead and visit uh, bit.ly slash redstartreg so that you can be notified about the next session. Uh, this is especially relevant today since this is gonna be our final session for a little while, just a brief hiatus. Um, so yeah, um, to learn more about Red Start's goals and guidelines for participation, um, go ahead and visit bit.ly slash redstartqs. So that's enough house housekeeping. So with that, let's get into the text. Um, so as I said, uh, this is the final installment. Well, actually this is our final Red Start session for a little bit. So this is our final installment of our imperialism unit. And it's the second and final installment of our discussion on France Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth. So last week uh, we discussed the essay entitled On Violence. And this week we're gonna be discussing the section entitled The Trials and Tribulations of National Consciousness. Um, so given that I did a much more in-depth overview of the book and its historical context last time, I'm just going to give a quick summary of the chapter in question before we, uh, actually we will not be breaking into breakout rooms, so before we start the discussion. Um, so in this section, Fanon focuses on the period immediately following decolonization, during which the newly liberated colonized subjects uh, must work to build an independent nation that operates for them and by them. Uh, Fanon spends a significant part of this chapter describing the form and function of the national bourgeoisie, who were formerly colonized elites. Immediately following decolonization, the national bourgeoisie fills the power vacuum left behind by the recently departed colonists. Unfortunately, the national bourgeoisie, according to Fanon, is in no way equipped to steer the development of the newly liberated country or to cultivate a unified national consciousness. On the one hand, they possess neither the capital nor the industrial experience to create and maintain forms of production beyond those left behind by the colonial bourgeoisie. And on the other hand, um, they're plagued by apathy and an, elit an elit elitism that leads to the recreation and maintenance of social and cultural elements of the former colony. So aware of their increasing unpopularity, the national bourgeoisie often resorts to selecting and propping up popular leaders, quote, heavy air quotes, popular leaders from among the formerly colonized subjects. Uh, Fanon goes on to explain how these leaders ultimately act to rationalize to the newly liberated masses, the national bourgeoisie's maintenance of oppressive colonial structures in the post-colonial context. Ultimately, Fanon argues that a political party must be established by formerly colonized intellectuals and other conscious or awakened individuals in order to educate and politicize the masses. Um, so such a party should exert the will of the people and rather than existing solely in the capital, should, present and, should be present and active throughout the entire country, regardless of any particular region's stage of development. So in Fanon's own words, quote, we have seen in the preceding pages how nationalism, that magnificent hymn which roused the masses against the oppressor, disintegrates in the aftermath of independence. Nationalism is not a political doctrine. It is not a program. If we really wanna safeguard our countries from regression, paralysis, or collapse, we must rapidly switch from a national consciousness to a social and political consciousness. The nation can only come into being in a program established by a revolutionary leadership and enthusiastically and lucidly appropriated by the masses." End quote. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into discussion.
Hi, yeah. Um, so I think this is the portion where we do Q&A. Um, so I will keep an eye on the chat. So feel free to um, type stack in the chat if you have a question for me or one of my Red Star comrades. Um, can be about the text, what we make of it, uh, thoughts, questions, curiosities. Okay, why did Maddie hate this book? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very specific question. Um, for Natalie to answer it, you might, um, you might phrase it more specifically. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, this one I'm going to have to kick to my uh, comrade Maddie, who can speak on why Maddie does not like this text. I don't know that. I didn't say I don't like this text. I do. I think it's interesting and good, and certainly serves an interesting political purpose. And I would suggest that people read it. Um, I think Fanon is an incredible writer. Um, I think he speaks very effectively to the need for political violence and its virtue. Um, especially in the context of violently imposed colonial relations. Um, and like he says a lot of things which I think are correct um, and maybe even gives specific prescriptions that are correct for a certain group of people that he's speaking to. So I think there's certainly a lot of value to this text. Um, there's certainly a lot of value to his writing. Um, there's a lot of value to where he's coming from and what's like spawned from it. Um, but I do think there are a variety of criticisms that one might make. Um, I think it does, in an interesting way, deviate from a more traditional Marxist, Leninist view of things, which is more grounded in historical materialism, um, and generally tends to make broad prescriptions that are not qualified in a way that allow them to be generalized in a way that's safe. Um, also simultaneously venturing into uh, a lot of what I think is idealistic thinking and some weird like impositions of uh, broad psychological claims, which I think sort of missed the mark. Um, I think these are understandable coming from where, where he's coming from and sort of the history of maybe psychoanalytic uh, thinking that he's, he's coming out of, but I don't think it works out quite so well. Um, for example, he does talk about uh, near the end, this idea of some like common European spirit that somehow explains uh, like the tail end of uh, European capitalism in the 19th and 20th century that also explains America and like they were so shaped by these values and that explained like why the uh, European bourgeoisie like behaved the way that they did and why America uh, behaved the way that they did. And I think this is um, a sort of a historical understanding of why things went down. Um, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to talk about like some uh, individualistic American European spirit um, that was the driving force of uh, economic relations and colonialism that stands in contrast to some also universal African spirit to say um, that needs to be rebelled against also. Um, there's an interesting part of this analysis where it's like, us as Africans, we should not seek to make a third Europe or whatever. We should not emulate what America did, which is like Europe, but 10 times worse. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because the history of America is that like they took that ram with it and became the global hegemon. And if your goal is to like forge a world anew and be powerful, uh, it seems like you should, you should take a lesson from that, not necessarily define yourself in opposition. So there's the strains of things like that that feel like idealistic and making these like broad 
psychological historical comparisons that, that don't necessarily feel so, so right. And it feels off, but again, potentially useful. So there's a variety of things like that, but those are mostly where my criticisms lie. I hope that answers your question. Thanks, Maddie. Um, I'll add something that we had to work through in our group in order to discuss this text that I think can be confusing for Marxists. Not going to assume that everyone here is one, but we in Red Star are. Um, is yeah, kind of related to what Maddie was saying about um, Fanon not necessarily coming from purely materialist perspective. So when he's talking about the bourgeoisie, like we might be thinking about kind of class relations as instantiated in some like material distinction under capitalism, usually ownership. Um, but that's not exactly what he's talking about here, which is why um, like there are certain uh, elements of the working class that are actually included in Fanon's um, definition of the national bourgeoisie. So I think just like coming from a purely materialist perspective that can also be a little bit confusing. And I think Bill made a really good point in our discussion that like when trying to organize around these constructs, if the constructs themselves are ill-defined or fuzzy, um, that can be difficult for like building strategy. Um, so as much as I really like this reading and think it's really powerful and like gained a lot both like theoretically and also on like a personal level as like a descendant of colonized subjects, um, that's also something to keep in mind when we're trying trying to use this text um, to like think about like actual strategy and how we engage with um, like international movements for, for liberation, like in real life. So yeah, um, Stack is open for more questions. Um, if anyone has any. <clears throat> I guess in the meantime, if there aren't other questions about the text, um, do other folks from Red Star want to talk about like what they took away from this reading. I can like share something that came up in the room that I thought was really cool. And then maybe the rest of us can also chime in. Um, I wanna highlight something that Anne said um, in our discussion that I think was just like a beautiful and succinct uh, sort of definition of like what the purpose of the, the, national, the national bourgeoisie is. Um, we were kind of talking about um, how Fanon talks about like the evolution of the national bourgeoisie as a sort of intermediary between under colonialism, colonized subjects and the colonists. Um, but I think Anne made a really like beautiful and succinct point that in the post-colonial context, literally the national bourgeoisie exists to essentially implement neocolonialism. Um, I think that just like was very clear, succinct. Um, basically they take fully take the place of the colonists that have recently exited um, and basically continue the sort of like economic conditions of colonialism without the sort of like cultural trappings um, or the sort of like superstructural trappings as visible in a typical colonial context. So I thought that was just like a very cool way of framing that. Um, that really helped me understand the concept a lot better. Um, so if any other comrades of mine wanna chime in and say something they took away uh, from this reading, that'd be great. Yeah, go ahead, Sam. Yeah, so we had a, a super interesting conversation about uh, the concept of the party and the question of centralization, which uh, for any DSA organizers know is a very live question. As an organization, DSA is, um, you know, experienced growth that's outpaced its ability to, uh, you know, keep up with the, with the huge explosion in its membership and is trying to figure out the best um, structures for organization to, to handle that. And so uh, these questions are very live for DSA and I think they should be live for any, uh, any organizers. We talked a little bit about 
um, the importance of a uh, of a party apparatus being one that is connected and and related to uh, people of the society that it uh, seeks to represent or to be an apparatus of. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, folks really liking the part where uh, Fanon speaks towards the goal of moving the party away from uh, purely the um, centered, literally geographically, of a uh, of an urban area and towards uh, the you know the territory of the colonial uh, body. Um, we talked a little bit about sort of how that does or doesn't map to. Uh, for example, the Leninist model of, you know, calling for rigid centralization as, you know, a, a particular political uh, condition under under czarism and, um, you know, what the what the question of centralism means both uh, geographically in terms of uh, the, the area of of a of a party's apparatus, as well as literally where does authority rely, uh, lie and, and how is it distributed. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for that, Sam. And yeah, I really appreciate the connection to our organizing work here in DSA because uh, yeah, centralization is certainly something we're pondering right now. Um, let's see. I see Bill is on stack. Go ahead. Well, my question is, don't you think that Lenin called for democratic centralism and focused alternatively on the centralism aspect under certain conditions? and then emphasize democracy under other certain conditions. It seems to me that the question is, is doesn't, don't you think Lenin advocated organizational implementations based on the politics that the party agreed upon? And don't you think that if you're in an organization that doesn't have political homogeneity, that it's so diverse that it contains people that support capitalism and those that oppose it is a political problem that can't be organizationally solved. It has to be politically solved. That's my question. Thanks, Bill. Um, yeah, I will take a preliminary stab at that, but definitely want to hear other folks' thoughts on this. This is actually kind of why I wrote the discussion question around uh, Fanon's emphasis on decentralization, um, because I thought that was like an interesting deviation from like Lenin's perspective on like Dems sent, which is something that I typically endorse. Um, yeah, I think the question of like centralization versus political education or, or like resolving political issues, I almost think that these are like two things that need to happen in parallel because like basically like I think that like democracy itself can kind of like help work out political differences and can also kind of give people an opportunity to like explain their perspective and if they're correct gain more followers um and so i think that like there's the piece of like political education that i think democracy can facilitate but there's the other question around like centralization versus decentralization that i don't have as strong thoughts on so i would be curious to hear someone else chime in and talk about that piece um, but i definitely think you're right about like decoupling like the role of structure versus the role of politics and i think that's something that we're trying to work out in our chapter as well um, and then I, and then I agree that like not, it's not necessarily that like centralizing the chapter will be a silver means all of a sudden we're all Marxists. Um, like there, there does need to be um, a sort of parallel strategy where we are doing political education and like through democracy over time, getting more and more people on board with our perspective. 
Um, but, but that centralization itself doesn't address that independently. Um, but if other folks have thoughts, oh yeah, I see Sam and then Maddie, uh, go ahead. Yeah, Bill, I think your question is an excellent one. I you know obviously there's a, there's a whole, uh, a range of history behind the question. And so, uh, really excited to, to, uh, try to figure out the right answers together. Right. Um, I, the way that I think about this is the idea that there is like abstractly political unity within a party or a party like organization is, um, is to me, not really necessarily even the goal, right? Like the goal of, uh, the goal of a socialist organization to me is to facilitate, uh, shared concrete activity, um, that shared concrete activity needs to be guided by a particular political apparatus. Um, but that it is not abstractly the, the political perspective that is important to build, but a shared set of concrete activities and choosing not to uh, engage in certain concrete activities. Um, to, to a certain extent, right, like an organization which has no mechanisms to uh, actually engage collectively in concrete activities as an organization is one which can just by its definition never actually create a, a unified political view. Um, but even even that being said, that you know, I, I don't think that was ever even as I understand it really like Lenin's argument about the the organizational goals of of the unity that uh, that was advocated for under under the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, right? The idea is that it's a it's a definite action that we're building unity on. Um, and so to that extent, I think you know, democratic control over the a chapter or a national organization or a uh, or a, a working group's um, definite actions is is clearly a good thing, right? Like it's it's the only practical mechanism by which we actually are able to align on a set of definite actions that uh, that that an organization will or won't do and actually be able to execute on those actions together. Um, so I, I don't think it solves the problem, but I think it's absolutely a, uh, a requisite to solving the problem because until you actually have people struggling together, you're not going to get enough people in the room to like have a political discussion that's actually going to be uh, effective enough at, at moving the chapter towards that shared direction. Thanks, Sam. Um, go ahead, Maddie. Yeah, just to continue a bit uh, with what Sam is saying. Um, I think the way that you, uh, it's a good question, Bill. Um, I think the way that it's framed though um, is a bit of a uh, false economy. That is, I don't believe that there are like distinct structural and political questions. Um, the way that I view it is that there's a certain collection of things which are political um, and there might be conflicts or tensions there. And for those things to be resolved, that's a process, right? Like. We need to have a uh, agora or like whatever the hell, uh, some forum where people can go and like do politics. And structures are the things that enable that to happen. Um, science, like if you imagine this as some sort of evolutionary scientific process where we're coming to like more or at least different, we're progressing through time to like have more different political things that help us do stuff. Um, there needs to be a lab. There needs to be a place where that scientific process can occur. And that is, you need some sort of structure. So like Sam said, structures are not enough, but they are requisite and enabling of politics to occur at all. You need to be able to get people in that room. And so yeah, like getting the right structures isn't gonna do the thing, uh, that's utopian. But uh, 
if you can't do politics, you can't get to the right thing. So you need at a baseline, some structures that let you do the politics that you want to do in order to resolve these political questions at all. So yes, there are political problems. To resolve them, you need some structures which allow you to resolve them. And I think a lot of the problems within DSA in general, um, or specifically DSAFF, have to do with the fact that we don't have like good venues for effectively and clear-headedly resolving political conflicts. Um, and so having structures that enable that is a good first step and necessary, I think. Thanks, Maddie. Um, next on stack is Mike. Yeah, I agree with what Sam and Maddie are saying. Um, you know, like Red Star functions in some ways along democratic centralist lines. We adopt some of the principles of it, but we don't at this point feel that that's right for all of DSA. We're not trying to make DSA into a democratic centralist organization. Um, DSA, we see it like as a mass party, um, as something that anybody can join, you know, and that's kind of what's great about it, being able to bring in absolutely anybody like without an admissions process. And like Bill pointed out, you know, that ends up with some people who are just literal capitalists in the party. I mean, in the organization, excuse me, it ends up with people who are liberals, with people who are anarchists. I think that's fine. Um, I really think that this is like, the point of this is really to do education. I think this is really important. Um, and like, America's not about to do a revolution today. Like it is, it is an incredibly like brutal system that we are under. And we just have like an incredible amount of people in this country who like are so incredibly inundated with like individualist thinking and with capitalist philosophy and propaganda that like we have a ton of work to do. I see DSA as like, um, a ground by which we can, through collective struggle and through practice with other people, really show people like what it would be like to have better organizational forms and to move something towards socialism. Um, I see this as like a, a learning ground, a place to train revolutionaries and a place to train organizers. Um, and that by definition means that you have to have people in it who are like not perfect Marxists and who are like not even maybe ideologically kind of close to like where we think I think we need them to be at least. Um, but yeah, you know, like Bill wrote in the chat, like, you know, for Marx and Lenin actions follow the political decisions of the party. Um, I completely agree with that. Um, I don't believe that DSA has an ability to even make political decisions right now because of our total lack of structure. Um, DSA currently is a brand that like exists on like a bunch of disparate working groups that like hate each other and like want nothing to do with each other. And some actively want to like destroy the organization like explicitly. And so it's like, I think that's a huge problem that we need to fix. Like, I think we need to start building systems and structures so that we can act collectively. And then, you know, a lot of the membership are people who, at least I disagree with politically, people who don't identify as Marxist, people who are liberals, people who are progressives, et cetera. Um, if we're acting collectively, these people will drag us in a direction that's not socialist. I think that's okay. Um, I think that as long as we are doing things together, people can learn through practice what works and what does not. Because like there isn't really a way to figure out like how organizing works unless you do it. And it's like we can tell people things as much as we want and, and we should, and we should do political education programs like Red Start and like the Education Committee. Um, and through that we can advocate for our ideas. But I think that people will really not understand what doesn't work until they do it a lot of the time. Um, and I say this from experience. I mean, like I, like when I joined DSA with someone who was against centralized structures, I was like, I just wanna do this stuff that's good and socialist. Other people wanted to sort of like bind things together and actually make us act collectively. And I was against it, um, which is kind of funny now, 
But like, it was only through doing that for years and having it not get us anywhere that I realized that like that wasn't working out. So I want to make sure that DSA is still like an opportunity for people to learn through practice what works and what doesn't. Let's collectively make mistakes together and then be that like Marxist center that can explain why things aren't working or why these mistakes were made and hopefully guide people towards a better understanding of Marx, of politics, of organizing, et cetera. Thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, thanks to all of my Red Star comrades for helping out with the Q&A. Um, so we are pretty much at time. Um, yeah, as I said at the start, this is going to be our last session for a little bit. We're going to do a brief hiatus, do some self-crit, see what we can do better in the future. So we will be back. Um, thanks to everyone who's been along the ride thus far. Um, I hope you've learned a lot. I certainly have learned a ton from all of you. Um, yeah, so please uh, hang tight. You will be getting an email from us uh, soon with the next set of sessions. Um, and Sam just pasted a link in the chat uh, to give us feedback. So please do that. Um, like I said, we're about to do a little retrospective. So we would love to know your thoughts and see what we can do better going well. Um, yeah, so that's all I've got for now. Thanks everyone for coming and for participating and we will see you very soon.